0: Let me begin uh, with you this morning by asking you a question. My question is uh, for you to consider with me is what are the marks of a truly great church? What do you think are the marks of a truly great church? Is it a beautiful facility? Is it an active calendar full of all kinds of programs designed to meet a plethora of needs? Is it a powerful preacher who's known nationally perhaps internationally? Maybe it's a large congregation where there is multiplied thousands of people. Perhaps it's a, a church, a truly great church would be one that would have an active social or even political involvement out there campaigning to change the laws of the nation and bring them more into conformity with God's standards. Are these the marks of a truly great church? I think not. In the Scripture, we have what I consider to be a great church. It's a church at Antioch. The church at Antioch. What makes the church at Antioch great, at least in my opinion, is that this was an outward-looking church. You'll remember this church. You can find the story in Acts 11. We won't turn there now. But this was the church that was founded based on persecution. There was the martyrdom of Stephen. And after his martyrdom, the believers were scattered from Jerusalem and they proceeded north into Antioch, Syria, and there they founded this church. So it was a church born out of persecution. Beyond that, it was a church that had an active cross cultural ministry. Because we're told there in Acts 11 and in verse 20 that it was there at Antioch that the message of the gospel first began to go to the Gentiles. They broke the most, the strongest barrier cultural, societal barrier of their day there at Antioch, taking the gospel outside of Judaism into the Gentile world. This was also a church that was committed to church planting, the missionary endeavor. In fact, they were so committed to it that if you carefully look there in Acts 13, they sent out 40% of their leadership team on a church planting endeavor. 40%. This was a church that was unflinching in the face of doctrinal error, Acts 15. When the Judaizers came and tried to bring the church back under the Mosaic law, they steadfastly refused and, in fact, sent a delegation off to the elders and apostles at Jerusalem to resolve the issue. In Acts 15, we have the Jerusalem Council. So the church at Antioch, I think, was a great church. Contrast that with me for a moment, if you will, the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus had a strong start. They were founded by the Apostle Paul. They had a powerful ministry as well. They planted a Bible school there and sent preachers out from that Bible school all over Asia Minor bringing the gospel. There was clear and, and... evident work of the Spirit of God there in Ephesus, people coming forward and burning their magic books and rejecting the pagan way of life. They had a mature leadership team. When Paul writes to Timothy there in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, he's pastoring the church there at Ephesus, and he, he gives them the qualifications there for an elder, right? 1 Timothy 3. This is a church that was mature with a sound leadership team. But we get to the end of the scriptures, to Revelation chapter 2, and we find that something had gone wrong in the church at Ephesus. Jesus, evaluating that church, says that they had lost their passion for him. That somehow in the midst of their activity, in the midst of their doctrinal integrity, in which they still maintained, they found themselves merely going through the motions. They become routine in their Christianity, and they had lost the passion For Christ. Beloved, I heard an old-time Baptist uh, Baptist pastor say to me once that, uh, that a rut is just a coffin with the ends kicked out. It seems as though the church at Ephesus had gotten themselves into some kind of a rut. How many of you remember the movie Chariots of Fire? That's good. I'd like to talk to at least a few of you. I'll commend it to the rest of you. It's a good movie, I think. It's a movie about this missionary to China, Eric Little. What he goes through. But there's, there's a line in the movie that has always stuck with me. And I haven't seen the movie in a long time. But there in the movie, his sister is criticizing him because she wants him to head off to China and get going on missionary work. But he's a, he's a world-class runner. Olympic quality runner. And he says to her, and I don't remember her name, but he says to her, Sister, God has made me fast. And when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. God has made me fast. And when I do the thing that he has made me to do, I feel his pleasure upon me. Eric Little knew the pleasure of God in his running. He then went on to India. He died just before the end of World War II, 1945, of a brain hemorrhage. Open your Bibles up to John chapter 14. Over the next few weeks together, it's probably going to take us three I want to look at John 14, verses 12 through 17. This morning we're only going to look at the first verse there, verse 12. But as we look at this section together, there are three life-changing truths to be found here, truths that Foothill Bible Church must understand and must implement so that we will know the pleasures of God on this ministry. When you do what God has created you to do, you know the pleasure of God. Beloved, if we want to know the pleasure of God, then we need to understand and and implement truth this passage here. John 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me and the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I... Go to the Father. The first truth, and you have it there on your handouts, the first life-changing truth from this passage is that we must reach for the promise of greater works. There is a promise given here in this text. And, beloved, we need to reach out for that promise and grab it. Now, contextually, you know where we are here. We are in the upper room. Jesus has just a short time left with his disciples, right? Judas has been dismissed prior to this in chapter 13. He's, he's off to get the, the Sanhedrin and the, and the Romans to come back. And so Jesus only has a short time. He's got much to say in preparation. He knows he's headed to the cross. And that his crucifixion is going to absolutely devastate this small band of followers. And so every word he says is critical. There are no throwaways. Time is short. And so he is laboring away here and he's instructing them. And as we saw, as we were looking at the prior verses here last time, that he has is, he is told them now in verses 10 through 11, in answer to Philip's question of verse 9, that, that he and the Father are one. He's talked about his ontological unity with the Father. He said that if you really perceive who I am, then you perceive the Father. That we are one. We are in each other, He says. He is talking about his godness in a way, in a clearer way, perhaps, than he has at any time up to this point, and certainly in a way that they have not yet understood. But they must understand it because the man, Christ Jesus, is soon to die, and they need to understand who he is, the mission that he came to do. He's saying that he's going to be going back to the Father here. And that his heading back to the Father, as he will shortly tell them, is going to be the basis for them to have a ministry that is far more significant even than his own. Truly, truly, he begins. Pay attention. Listen up. Don't fall asleep on me now. I mean, they've had a big meal, right? It's late at night. They're in the upper room. Don't fall asleep on me now. Because what I've got to tell you is staggering. It is an absolutely staggering promise. The works that I do, he shall do also. And greater works than these he shall do. Greater works. Now, in context here, verses 10 and 11, the works of Jesus are miracles. I don't think there's any denying that. There are miracles. He is talking at least initially here in this chapter about, in this verse rather, about miracles. Right? Verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. Verse 10. He says, the Father abiding in me does his works. John's whole gospel is organized around seven such works, right? Right? John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, right? And believing you might have life in his name. So John gives us seven spectacular works, and we've traced our way through all of those. Culminating with the greatest work of all, the resurrection of a man who was in a state of decomposition. Four days in the grave. So there is no doubt in the context here that at least initially what he's saying to them is you are going to be doing amazing miracles. And you're going to do these, look again, verse 12 at the end, because, reason, because I go to the Father. It is because of my crucifixion. It is because of my resurrection. It is because of my ascension back to the right hand of the Father that you will now have a ministry like mine and beyond. he's saying further down in the text here we'll develop it in the weeks to come he's going to say my departure i'm going to send in my place another right i'm going to send the holy spirit and he is going to empower your ministry and actually the age of the spirit has come right with the ascension of christ comes the age of the spirit's But there's no denying the fact here. They're going to be doing some serious things. Now, look again with me at this verse carefully. It says, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he shall also do. And greater, you see the word works in your text? Look at that. It's in italics, or should be. Okay, if you have the word works there. It's in italics because it's not there, it's not there originally. Now, some this is what you might call uh, this may be an ellipsis, or we call it an ellipsis. That is, that the idea is implied here. There's a parallel that's going on, right? The works that I do, He shall also do, and greater. You might would naturally think works, greater works. These shall do, and so that's one way to kind of look at this text. But it's also grammatically possible. Because works is not repeated here, that it's, it's intentionally left vague. And in fact, the NIV translates it that way for you. They say greater things. This is one time, by the way, that I, I would think I would go with the NIV here. So he says, he who believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also in greater things than these shall he do because I go to the Father. I, I like that translation because I think it, it opens it up for us just a little bit wider as to what Christ is really talking about here. Jesus is giving them, as I said, an astounding promise. He's promising not just that they will reduplicate the things that he has done, but they are going to go beyond what he has done. That's staggering. I mean, he has just established, just a couple of verses earlier, right, that he has ontological unity with who? The Father. The miracles that he's done have been amazing miracles. Culminating in John's gospel, at least with the resurrection of Lazarus, a man four days in the grave. So to go beyond that and to say that you will do these and greater is staggering. Just staggering. What in the world could you do that is beyond that? What is greater than that? There's a parallel thought here. Go with me uh, over to John 5. We'll just kind of pick that up and bring it to bear on this. John 5, verse uh, 20 and 21. Jesus is speaking here, and he says in verse 20, But the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, that you may marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whomever He wishes. What sense is Jesus going to do greater works than the Father? Well, you can go back and get the tape as we develop that passage. But there in John 5, what He's saying is, the Father raises the dead physically and gives them physical life. The Son of God is going to raise the dead spiritually, and He's going to give them spiritual life, which is of a greater extent than the physical life. Back there in John 5. He's going to do something like unto it, but more. And I think we can carry that thought back over here to John 14. So go on back. And I think that helps unlock the key to exactly what is Jesus promising here in verse 12. Promising, by the way, beloved, to these disciples. And as we'll begin to unfold the passage, I think the promise flows through even to us today. So as I'm working this together in my mind this week, I'm asking myself two questions. Two questions come into my mind. First question is, was Jesus promising His disciples the ability to perform miracles? I think that's a question you just have to ask the text. And the answer to the question is what? Yes. Yes, He was. And in fact, as you work through the book of Acts, it clearly indicates what? That they had miraculous Miracle-working power. There was miracle-working power there displayed from those early apostles. And in fact, it's interesting, and it's probably in my mind only because we're working through Hebrews at night, but I'll go on over to, to uh, Hebrews for a minute. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. And notice how the writer to the Hebrews... talks about how, the, the receiving of the message of salvation by those early converts. Verse 3, we pick it up. He talks about salvation. He says, after it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also bearing witness. To uh, with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. There's no question that as the Gospel message initially went out into the world, it went out with an amazing display of power. Miracle-working power. There's no question about it. But it would be inaccurate understanding of Scripture to assume that that miracle-working power just continues on ad infinitum, right up until today. And the reason I say that, and again, I don't want to get trapped into this. I just want to touch on this and move on. But go over with me to Second Corinthians 12 and look at verse 12. Just put this verse away in your mind. You can think about it more later. The Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians 12:12, 12, 12, he's defending himself. As an apostle, and he says, verse 12, 2 Corinthians 12, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. What the apostle Paul is saying is that it was the miracle-working power that authenticated the message of the apostles that they took out into the world. Jesus authenticated his own ministry through the miraculous, his first generation of followers, His disciples authenticated their ministry, their their ministry as apostles through the working of miracles as well. And as the church matured and the canon was completed, the miracles died away. And that leads me to the second question that I want to ask and answer in far more detail with you this morning. The bigger question of the text And that is, in what sense did Jesus' disciples perform greater works than he did? Look again, John 14, verse 12. I don't think I can stress this enough, that we have a promise here of greater works. In what sense did they perform greater works than Jesus? Well, let me just... Make a few observations for you of kind of a side-by-side comparison of the ministry of Christ and the ministry of these first followers, these early apostles. I think that helps to lead us into what's really talking about here. As I said earlier in the book of Acts, it's, it's readily apparent the apostles performed miracles. No question about it. But the miracles they performed... And impressive as they were, they they did not equal in extent or power the miracles of Christ. I mean, think with me on this. Think about the nature miracles of Jesus. Right? Calming the seas, turning water into wine, feeding 5,000 men plus women, children, maybe 20,000 people. Right? Taking a, a coin from the mouth of a fish. Raising a man who had been dead in the grave four days, no refrigeration of the body, no embalming, four days, beloved, there's not a lot left. It's already kind of fallen apart. These were nature miracles performed by Christ and and not duplicated by his apostles. And so, yes, they did perform works like unto him, but they never quite reached The stage that he performed. And so they can't be the answer to the question of greater works. I mean, how do you do something greater than what he had done? You can't. So what is it? What is it that he's promising? Well, I'm going to give you an answer. Jesus, in his public ministry never traveled outside of Palestine. land of Palestine is about 200 miles long. He traveled up and down it a number of times. But never in his life did he ever travel outside of Palestine. Nor did he have any kind of significant contact with the pagan world. In fact, he said his message was for the lost sheep of the house of who? Israel, right? Now, contrast that with the statement recorded for us in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, a commentary on the ministry of the Apostle Paul, where there at Thessalonica they say that these men have turned the whole what? World upside down. There is a difference in extent. Jesus' ministry was geographically constricted it was ethnically restricted the ministry of the apostles was broad both geographically broad and ethnically broad let me keep going jesus preaching ministry never produced to the best we can tell any large and enduring crowd of followers Isn't that right oh when he was popular he was really popular they'd follow him for a while but as soon as he turned back on them and and make one of those demands that he was so frequent to do they'd melt away like butter on a hundred degree day in fact john tells us in john chapter 6 verse 66 that many stopped following from that point on right So Jesus' ministry, although initially attractive to the crowds, soon dispersed the crowds and they vanished. And so his popularity was somewhat fleeting. Contrast that with the apostles. In one sermon, on the day of Pentecost, Peter produced more followers, more converts to Christ than Jesus did in his whole three-year public ministry. Right? How many people came to believe? 3,000. 3,000 in one sermon. Is that just because Peter was a better preacher? Of course not. Look again, verse 12. Greater works than these ye shall do. Why? Because what? I go to the Father. He went to the Father and he sent the Spirit. And the Spirit came when? Pentecost. Pentecost, okay? So just the, his preaching ministry compared to theirs. I'll give you another one. Jesus' preaching, teaching ministry, his, his words and his deeds, remain somewhat obscure during his public ministry. Is that a fair statement? I mean, he would say things and people would go, right? I mean, they just, many times they don't get it. I mean, you can see that illustration of that right here in this text. Look again at verse 14 or chapter 14. Chapter 14 is structured, I told you, around a series of questions, right? Because they don't get it. This is the most intimate core of followers. This is the eleven. The closest of the close. They're here with him. They've been with him the whole time. They're here on the last night before his crucifixion. And they're still trying to work through basic questions with him. They don't get it. At least not fully. There was a certain sense in which his message was always misunderstood, always obscured, always needed further clarification. Sometimes it seemed like he deliberately obscured his message. All right? Contrast that again to the preaching of the apostles. When the apostles preached, the message was clear. Right? They demonstrated remarkable insight into the work of God. The apostle Paul talks in Ephesians chapter 3 about the mystery that had been revealed to him. And he, you know, reveals it to us, right? Jew, Gentile together in one body. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't things hard to understand, that the apostles write. Peter says there were many things Paul wrote that was hard to understand. But relatively speaking, there was a greater sense of clarity to the message. There was a greater persuasion to the message. So, in what sense did they do greater works? Well, let me give it to you, just pull all this together and give it to you in a nutshell here. First, they preached with greater clarity. Who said that? They preached with greater clarity. They had a message that that was made effectual by the work of the Holy Spirit who Christ sent when he had returned to the Father, that made their preaching more effectual than Christ's. Second, they had greater geographical and ethnic reach. To their message. Greater geographical and ethnic reach. Jews in Palestine versus Gentiles all around the world. And a good thing because most of us wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for that. So it was greater in the reach and in terms of its reach. Finally, they had greater efficacy. A greater efficacy. Jesus produced a minimal number of followers. They produced, in short order, a massive number of followers. I mean, it's a good way to get started when you begin with three thousand, right? You begin the early chapters of the book of Acts, and it just keeps talking about being added to the church, added to the church, added to the church. Most Bible scholars think the church at Jerusalem maybe had as many as twenty thousand members. Can you imagine pastoring a church of twenty thousand, man. Problems galore. <laughs> Can you imagine that, Dennis? Whew. Okay? The church grew rapidly. Just, bam. I mean, at the end of the book of Acts, the church is already in Rome. When the church gets to Rome, beloved, it's through the empire. You know, when you look at the maps... The early growth of the church, and it's just staggering. This little thing in Palestine, the whole Mediterranean basin filled with Christianity. They go from a persecuted little minority within just a few centuries, it becomes becomes the, the official religion of the Roman Empire. It's incredible. What is the answer for the greater works? The answer to the greater works is the worldwide spread of the gospel. That's the answer. The, the promise of the greater things or greater works that we have to reach out and grab is the worldwide expansion of the gospel. That's the way his followers exceeded the master. Take out your handouts if you don't have them out already. Everybody get your handouts out. This is an interactive sermon this morning. Okay? Just take a, a moment. A couple things, by the way. On the bottom of those handouts, on the second page, you know where the application questions are. You'll see resources. I just have to say this. These resources are available. I, you know we put them down there so you can use them. They're available to you in the bookstore and or the library. Okay? So that advertisement's over. What I want you to do is take your hand out. And somewhere on there, I want you to draw two triangles. Isosceles triangles. That means equal size, doesn't it? Okay. Equal Was it equal angles? Equal angle triangles. You can tell how well I did in math, right? So draw me two triangles. And then, and then divide them into four segments. Each triangle has four segments. Okay? This way. Horizontal segments. And on the left hand triangle, I want you to put in, I want you to write the word principles. We've got to move quickly here because I don't have as much time as I need. So, principles on the left hand one. Next segment underneath it, write people. Under that, write programs. Principles, people, programs. Last one, property. That's right, horizontal segments, please. Principles, people, programs, property. In the left-hand triangle, starting at the top, I want you to write property, programs, people, principles. Okay. The reason I want you to do this is because this is a visual representation of two ministry styles. The ministry on the left is the ministry of Christ. Jesus devotes his time to principles. Followed by people. Then programs at the most minute level. And then he never gets around to property, right? Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The triangle on the right characterizes much of contemporary evangelicalism. The majority of their time, energy, and finances are spent on what? Property. Followed by programs. Eventually they get around to people. People. And seldom do they ever deal with principle. They've taken the the ministry model of Christ and they've flipped it on its head. See, we will never do greater things if we don't pursue it in the way that Christ pursued it. If we want to pursue it in the way that much of contemporary evangelicalism will do it, we can build large edifices. But that's all they will remain is large edifices. It's a spiritual work that we do. It's a spiritual work. We have to reach for the promise of the greater works. You know, when I was a kid, you'd ride around on a merry-go-round and there was a brass ring. Do you remember that, some of you? You ride around, you've got to reach for the brass ring, right? I never could get the brass ring. And the reason I couldn't get it is because I was always afraid to lean too far off the horse to get it, that I was going to fall. And so around and around I'd go, and the brass ring would always elude me because I was afraid to reach out for it. I was afraid to stretch for it. I don't go on merry rounds anymore. They make me sick. Yeah. Beloved William Carey said, expect great things for God. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Let me dream a little for you. Can I do that? Can you imagine what would it be like to see a continual flow of workers to the harvest fields coming out of this fellowship? People heading overseas, bring the gospel message to lands that have never heard it. People groups, love the gospel. Older people, younger people. People growing up through high school and into college, and instead of heading off into an occupation where they can settle down and earn a good living for themselves and create a nice, strong family environment, would instead be willing to reach out, give it all up, An army of neighborhood ambassadors pouring forth from this place, Jim, not just one Sunday a month. How about every Sunday? Taking the gospel out to the community in ever-widening circles. What would it be like if, well, I don't know, what if 50% of our budget was spent on outreach? What would that be like? What would it be like if we were to take a little Bible school that we have down there and kind of leverage that? Use it to train pastors and church planters? Men? Women? Those that can't afford seminary or formal Bible school? Train them up, send them out? What would that be like? How about if we were to reach out into this community and seek to do something about the social problems, like the poor? Can't help everybody, but it seems to me we could help a few, couldn't we? We could bring them a gospel and a meal. What if every one of us were to share our faith at least once a month with somebody? What would that be like? Everybody in here, at least once a month. Talk to somebody about the gospel, about Christ. What would that be like? I think it would be like reaching for a brass ring. If you cling too tight to the horse, you'll never reach it. But maybe you hang on with one hand onto the, to the reins, huh, and you stretch way out. Out so far that you're going to fall. You know, you're going to fall. Unless God holds you. You know, some people look at opportunity and they say why it can't be done. Others look at opportunity and, and they say, why can't it be done? Same words, just a different way of looking. Beloved, I think the opportunity is huge before us. World population is growing at a staggering rate. I read one place and, I mean, admittedly it's conjectural, but makes good preaching anyways, <laughs> They said there's more people alive today than at any time since the great flood. I don't know. But I'll tell you what, you you go anywhere and you begin to look at the population growth of this world and it is staggering. How many people are coming into this world and they're without Christ? And we got so much work to do. So much work. We need an army of gospel preachers army to whom much has been given much is required if we're going to continue to know the pleasure of God on this ministry then we need to reach for the promise of greater things let's pray Lord God, our faith is so shallow, so small, so faltering, so conditioned by what we can see with our eyes, touch with our hands. Lord God, we need you. We need a work of grace in our lives, our Father, that would cause us to reach out in a way we've never reached out before. Our Father, to put us in a position where we have no one to depend upon but you and you alone. And that when the results come rolling in, there is nobody that can have credit for it but you and you alone. Our Father God, there's a promise here for us. We need to claim it. We pray you'd help us to do it. Not for our glory, Lord God, not at all. Restrain us from reaching forth our hand to touch your glory. For at the end of the day, when we've done what we should do, we are but humble servants. May the name of the Lord Jesus Christ be exalted in our lives. Amen.